so, so good to be back with you, to be able to share. Pastor Ken, very graciously, we talked a few weeks ago, and he said, you need to come out sometime. And he said, oh, that time has come. I'm going to be gone doing a wedding. Would you come? And I said, I'd be glad to come back. I think it was obviously pre-COVID before I was here before. So it's been a, a few days uh, since that time. So it's so good to be back, to be with you. I'm going to continue the series on generosity today. And today what I want to do is to have a character study of generosity through a man whose name or who is called Barnabas. Now that's not his real name. It's a nickname. It's a nickname that the apostles gave him. And the word Barnabas means son of of encouragement. And we're going to see why they gave him that nickname. But I want to digress for a moment because I've always been one to give nicknames and receive nicknames. Just to give you a couple examples, when I was in college, uh, my roommate, one of my best friends, he loved the Jewish people and he loved to study Hebrew. And so I gave him the nickname Stein. And I still call him up. When I call him up, he lives out in Philadelphia. And I said, Stein, how are you doing? How's the East Coast? And he knows exactly what goes way back to all those, those college days. Now, for myself, my father was born in Palermo, Sicily. I have family connections, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I not only have God the Father on my side, I have the Godfather as well. And so I just make a call to one or the other, depending on the situation. Hey, Guido, I got a job for you, Okay. <laughs> So my family came over. My dad as a kid with my grandfather and the rest of the family. And, you know, the, the Italians were notorious for not always having their, their papers. And so they would say, without papers. They called them WAPs. Now, that was a phrase that my father didn't care about very much, but it was something that I took pride in. And so all through college, my friends never called me Joe. They always called me WAP. And even to this day. And they meant it endearingly. I think. <laughs> so the apostles also give nicknames. Jesus did that too. He called James and John sons of thunder uh, because they were hotheads, because they, had a, they wanted to zap people. They had been out preaching. People weren't listening to them and it makes you upset. I understand that as a preacher. It happens. People fall asleep and you know what I used to do? <laughs> I used to look at them and just start talking louder like this. And then I just keep staring at them, you know. <laughs> And after a while, somebody can tell that they're staring at you, even with their eyes closed, and they kind of wake up. But then I realized, you know, my sermons got them so close to heaven <laughs> that they're just cradled in the arms of Jesus, and they fell fast asleep. Well, that's not true. You know that. So I, I, through the years, I've, I've given nicknames, Jesus has given nicknames, and the apostles do as well, to a man by the name of, of Barnabas who his given name is Joseph. It's one of the reasons I like him a lot. See, on the one hand, on the Italian side, name a good Italian in the scripture. I mean, you've you got the Caesars, you know, they, they claim to be divine, be the son of God and be God in the flesh, just like Jesus did, you know, but they were obviously false. We have Pontius Pilate, most crooked of all uh, politicians that you might want. And then you have the Roman soldiers who actually killed Jesus. But there is one exception. My favorite Italian in the Bible in the New Testament is, is Cornelius. Cornelius, who is a God-fearer, who becomes a follower of Jesus. So he's one exception out of all the others. So on the one side of my heritage, I feel kind of down biblically because 
my history's not very good there, right? But on the other hand, when it talks about Joseph, now think about Joseph's. Those are all good guys. Joseph in the Old Testament, you know, there's 13 chapters, 14 chapters that are mentioned for him in the book of Genesis. We have Joseph of Mary and Joseph. He's a pretty good guy, a pretty stand-up fellow, given the circumstances of the time. You have Joseph of Arimathea, who takes Jesus down from the cross and, and buries him in his own tomb, which is pretty cool. And now you have Barnabas, whose name is Joseph. So I feel a little bitter on that side of me, but I'm, I find myself on both sides of it. You ever feel like that? You know, there's a, there's a part of you that is godly and is good, and there's another part that's kind of struggling, not only with your heritage, but what's kind of within you. And so I understand that experientially between Joseph and the Italians. But who is this Barnabas guy? Why is he called son of encouragement? We're going to see that he's a person of generosity, and he gives a character study of that generosity that I hope can be an example to us and also can encourage and challenge us. We first run across him in the fourth chapter of Acts. We have our text there, please. We, what's going on is that the church is raising money to take care of the poor in the area. And people, on occasion, they're selling property, they're, they're bringing in jewelry, they're, they're giving their gifts so that the poor can be taken care of in Jerusalem and the Judea area. And so it says this at the end of chapter 4, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, that's an island out in the Mediterranean Sea, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, we don't know anything about this field. I don't know if this field is on Cyprus. I don't know that now he's living in the Jerusalem area, if it's around Jerusalem, but he's got some, some property. It may be family property. It might be investment property. It might be something to expand his crops. We really aren't told what that is, but he is challenged within himself that when the church is raising money for the poor, that he's going to sell this field. And it's a simple phrase here in a couple verses saying he's Barnabas, son of encouragement, Joseph the Levi from Cyprus, and he sells a field. It's often overlooked because of what happens in the fifth chapter. Maybe you remember there are two people, a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and they also have a field that they sell. They sell it and they bring the money to the apostles, but they kept some of the money back. And it wasn't a matter of them keeping it back because as we go through this scenario, we find out Peter says, it was your property, you didn't have to sell it. <clears throat> when you sold it, you didn't have to give all the money. But obviously what they do is they have conspired with one another to appear to be better than they are and saying that, yes, we sold this field for this amount of money and we're giving all of it to the poor and to the church. And that's what got them in trouble. It was not holding it back. It was lying, he says, not just to man, but also to the Holy Spirit. And God strikes both of them dead. Now, some people look at that story and say, it's pretty outrageous. You know, it's a pretty scary thing. Come to church and you're going to fall over dead, right? Because you didn't put enough money in the offering plate. That, that, that really gets scary, doesn't it? Come on. <clears throat> and so some people say, that, that's just too outrageous. Well, here's my take on it. I, I take this as to be an historical fact, and I'll tell you why. Just from more of a logical, not just a faith point of view, it's because of who wrote this. This was written by Luke. 
Luke wrote Luke and Acts. It's a two-volume set. What Jesus did in the body and what Jesus did through the body of the church. What Jesus did when he was here on earth and in Acts what he did when he left the earth, okay? Luke, we find out from Colossians 4.14 from the Apostle Paul that he is a, a medical doctor. He's a physician. And he has taken his skills as a physician and the research that he's known in science of the day. And he says, I have now studied and evaluated the life of Jesus. And in Luke, he says, I'm going to give you an orderly account of his life. And then in Acts, he says, I'm going to now give you a history of the early church. So I believe that with that kind of background, that kind of person, God used him to tell us what the historical things were. Jewish people were sometimes known for kind of telling stories, just like Jesus was. They're based upon reality, but they may or may not be true stories of true people. They may be and they may not be. So the Jews were more of that kind. But Luke is not a Jew. He is a Greek person, and he's a medical person, and he is giving an orderly account of the life of Jesus in Luke and the life of the early church in Acts. And so I believe that he's giving a historical account. This actually happened. It's so dramatic that many people overlook the two verses here about Barnabas because it just says it pretty simply. He came and he was generous. There was a need for the poor people. The church was trying to take care of the poor in the area. People were encouraged. They were challenged. And those who felt the call, those who felt to be generous in that situation, even sold their property. Whether it was an investment or was their income or even their family background, they chose to do that. It wasn't required, but it was something that they did and what Barnabas did. A man of generosity, giving to the poor of what he had. Secondly, we find him in the ninth chapter. And in the ninth chapter we find that a man by the name of Saul has been persecuting the church. He was a Pharisee. That is, he was a religious elite. And he felt that Christianity was a threat to traditional Judaism. And because of that, he decides to wipe it out. And he is going about trying to arrest people and perhaps even kill people who are following this kind of religious heresy in his opinion. In fact, in the chapter 7, there's a man that says his face was like the face of an angel. His name was Stephen, and he's sharing about the history of the old, uh, in the, from the Old Testament, about uh, what God had done and how faithful he was, and then about how Jesus came and was the fulfillment of those promises. And the Jewish leaders of the time take stones, and they start to stone him to death. And they lay their cloaks in front of Saul, who it says, and he was giving his assent, his consent to what they were doing. Because this guy was a heretic, and they were going to kill him. Now, some people, let me digress for a moment, think that this shows that Saul himself was a member of what was called the Sanhedrin, or the ruling body of that time. Because the word that's used here, that he gave his consent, was a word that was used for voting in the Sanhedrin. So maybe he was even a part of the, the leadership within that community and their desire to wipe out these Christians because, again, they were a threat to traditional Judaism. So we find him going about trying to 
kill Christians, and he has this desire to go to Damascus, Syria. He goes to Syria, and on the way, he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And he has a dramatic event. In fact, this is so dramatic in the book of Acts, it's mentioned three times. In the ninth chapter, the 22nd chapter, and the 26th chapter, in front of other people, Paul, Saul, tells his story about his conversion where he encounters Jesus. And in this encounter, he goes blind because of great light. Jesus comes before him in a great bright light. He has scales over his eyes. He gets taken into Damascus, and there he uh, is taken to a home of a man by the name of Ananias, a different guy by that name. And he's a little afraid of Saul because he knows he's there to kill or at least to arrest Christian people. But God said, I'm going to show him that he's going to be my man and he's going to suffer. Uh, go ahead. And he, he preaches to him the gospel about who Jesus is. And the scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized into Christ. And now in Damascus, he starts preaching the gospel. The Jewish people that are there thinking he has come to wipe out these Christian sect now finds him preaching on behalf of them. And they're really upset about that. In fact, they're looking for a way to kill him. But Paul, Saul, finds out that that is happening. And so his friends at night put him in a basket and let him out off down the wall of the city, and he escapes to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he wants to join the other Christians. But imagine that. If somebody that you knew was persecuting and killing Christians, or at least arresting them, and now they want to become a part of the church, you might wonder, what, 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 what? This guy, he's not for real. He can't be for real. What he's doing is he's trying to get us from within. He's going to become a part of the community so he can destroy us from within. And so they're suspect of him. And so in the ninth chapter, verses 26 and 27, we read this. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas stands by the side. In fact, that's what the word encouragement means. It means to stand by the side. He stood by the side of the poor and gave money to help them. He stands now by the side of an outsider that everybody's worried and scared about. He puts his reputation on the line. Because if he's wrong, this is a real problem, right? This is a real problem. But he believes what happened to Saul really happened to Saul. And he praises Saul for the conversion that he's had, for the preaching he's already done, and he stands by his side before the leaders of the church community there in Jerusalem said, this guy is for real. A generous person to put his reputation on the line for someone that other people were afraid of and were suspect of and had good reason to be. Barnabas was an encourager and served Saul who became the great apostle Paul. That's one of the things that I want you to see through this message as well, that through his generosity, through his standing by the side of others, they become other than what they were. The poor can now at least have substance. An outsider 
who has been persecuting the church now becomes the great Apostle Paul, who writes many books of the New Testament as we know it and went throughout the Roman Empire of that time planting churches. Well, our, our third story of, of Barnabas is found in the 11th chapter. And what has happened in the meantime that because of what happened to um, Stephen when he is stoned to death, that a persecution of Christians happened throughout the whole country of Israel. And as a result, many people got away. They, they left the area. And some people went to a city in Antioch. It was mainly a Gentile area. And at first, they're only telling people who are Jewish about Jesus. But some of them started telling a Gentile. Now, you see, from the Jewish perspective, there's Jews and there's Gentiles. That's all. There's two categories of people. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so anybody who was from a Greek background, they were a Gentile. But they started telling these people about Jesus. Now, th this is problematic from a Jewish cultural point of view because a Jew would never have any kind of fellowship. They would not eat with a Gentile at all. In fact, when Paul is traveling around planting churches and converting people, there was a group of people who are called the Judaizers who followed in after him to contradict what he had been teaching. And what they said is, oh, it's okay for these Gentiles to become Christians, but they have to become Jews first. They have to go through the sacrifice. They need to go through a baptism. They need to be circumcised if they're male. Then they can become a Christian and be baptized into Christ. They are putting all these regulations in front of them. In, in Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, there's a whole big meeting and prayer time and discussion about what do we do with these Gentile people because it's outside of their experience. We don't deal with Gentile people. But now they're coming to Christianity. How can we fellowship with them when that's not a part of our culture? And so there was a big problem with that. In fact, it continues in the book of Galatians where Peter has finally arisen above this cultural divide and he starts having meals with Gentile people until these Judaizers come up and they start giving him a hard time and he backs off. And Paul, when he comes, says, what in the world are you doing? What a hypocritical thing you're doing. How, how can you be such a hypocrite and be an apostle? He's on his case. And as he writes Galatians, he also says, well, one bad thing about Barnabas, he says, even Barnabas was fooled by all this, that he was taken back and he was misguided like Peter was. So this was a big problem in the early church because cultures coming together is not always an easy thing. And it wasn't then either. But when the apostles hear about what's going on, what do they do? Let's look at what it says in Luke, excuse me, Acts, the 11th chapter. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyrus, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace of God had, had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch so that for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So when they're dealing with the problem of this integrated body of believers, they sent Barnabas because they knew he would serve them. He would encourage them. He would be generous with his support. And when they do, that body comes together in unity. Notice something at the last part of that last verse. The Christian followers of Jesus first became called Christians in Antioch. I can't help but think that the reason that that was true is because it was the first integrated church. It was the first church that brought different ethnics different cultures together to say there is no division there. It's like what Paul wrote in Galatians 3, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. And so it was here that followers of Jesus are first called Christians who are followers of him and who are to become like him. Well, our our final, our fourth story about uh, Saul and, and um, Barnabas takes place in the, the 13th chapter. Uh, they had gone on a missionary journey. It's called the first missionary journey. And in the middle of it, a man by the name of John Mark, we find out John Mark from the 12th chapter, where a church met in his mother's house. You see, they didn't have church buildings back then. They started, the church started in houses, And uh, sometimes they were in school, sometimes they were down by a river under a tree, but usually people met in one another's homes. The reason we have church buildings is to accommodate. Not many of us could accommodate this number of people uh, in our homes. And that's why church buildings were built through the centuries, to accommodate more people at one time and one place. But as they are going about in this particular instance, they're they're meeting in people's homes, and uh, some of them meet in John Mark's mother's home. So John Mark goes on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And let's see what it says about what happened. Now from Pamphus, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia where they left John with them, or John left them, excuse me, to return to Jerusalem. So he goes on this journey, but then he wimps out. We don't know why. In this context, he's called a huperetus. A huperetus was an under rower. You ever see a movie where you, you go down below in a, a ship and uh, somebody's got this anvil and they're hitting and say, stroke, stroke, and you've got people rowing? And the people who are rowing are huperetuses. They're, they're under rowers. And usually those people were slaves or they were convicts of some sort. Now, now we're not saying that John Mark was a slave or a convict, but what it probably means is he was doing menial tasks. He probably swabbing the deck washing the clothes, washing the dishes, those kinds of things. And he gets homesick saying, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I'm out of here. I'm going back home. Then when we get to the 15th chapter, look what happens. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. 
But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement. That word is only found two times in the New Testament here and in Hebrews 10.24. It means they just really had an argument of arguments. And they parted company. They split. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed for Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers, to the grace of the Lord. Our first split that we see in the early church is over John Mark. Now, we find out something interesting, I think, in Colossians 4.10, where it says that John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. It's the only time that word is found in the New Testament. And it's, in other places, it's usually translated cousin. But some people think it's nephew because of the way the word sounds. The Greek word is the word anephios. Anephios. So what does that sound like? A nephew. <laughs> right? And so some people say he's a nephew of Barnabas. Some people say he's a cousin. But there's a, definitely a family situation here. And so he wants to encourage somebody who wimped out, somebody who was unreliable, somebody who was immature, and somebody who was part of his family that he saw some potential in. And he was right. Because John Mark is a writer of the book of Mark, the gospel. Again, the generosity to stand by somebody who had failed earlier, but he saw the potential, he saw that diamond in the rough, and he wanted to help him to succeed, and he did. You see why he's called Barnabas, the son of encourager? First of all, we see that he encouraged the poor, and he encouraged them by giving money. He was generous with what he had. Not with what he didn't have, but with what he had. And I think that becomes a great example for us as well, to be generous people with what we have. Secondly, we find him being generous with his praise and his support, his encouragement of somebody who's an outsider. That other people say, I don't know. I don't know if we can trust this guy or not. But Barnabas stands by his side. In the third story, we find his generosity in bringing people from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds together as one to help to knock down the divide that society puts up between different ethnic groups, between different cultures, and shatters that by saying, no, these people belong with one another. And then we find his generosity by supporting somebody who had wimped out, who had failed in the past. He says, I see the potential in this person. And you see, in each case, the people that he encouraged were able to raise, raise themselves in, 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 from where they were. The poor, the sustenance, the Saul become the great apostle Paul, the early church where they finally became Christians because they broke the cultural divide, and then John Mark, who had failed, who had wimped out, but he became the writer of the gospel of Mark. One thing I haven't talked about is this, and it's more implied as you read through the book of Acts than specifically stated as these are. In the beginning of the relationship between Saul slash Paul and Barnabas, it always says Barnabas and Paul or Barnabas and Saul. And then as the story continues, 
it switches almost always, not 100%, but almost always it becomes Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. Do you see the implication of that? That at the beginning, Barnabas is the leader. Paul is his mentor. But because of the call that Paul had upon his life and the maturity and the dedication he had, he becomes a main spokesman and the main person. And what I find very interesting in my assumption of that is the humility of Barnabas to allow someone else to overshadow him. The generosity to help somebody reach their potential that was even beyond where he was at. He didn't write a gospel, but Mark did. He helped with the planting of all those churches, but he didn't write books of the New Testament. Paul did. And I believe because of the character that he had, he was okay with that. He was okay because he saw that his generosity was bringing the kingdom of God through a greater way because he shared his finances and he supported the people that were around him. My friends, our culture needs more Barnabases. We need more Barnabases because there's so many divides. The big C church as a whole needs more Barnabases. And I believe that Newberry Park First Christian Church needs some Barnabases too, who will be generous with finances, generous in support of those who need it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the example of, of Barnabas. What a great man. What a great follower of you. What a person of, of humility and encouragement and, and sacrifice. And I just thank you for his example to us. And I would pray that you'd help each one of us in our own way to become a little bit more like him because he is a lot like Jesus. Uh, and I pray that uh, in that process that your kingdom will grow and your church will grow. Our lives will change and the lives of others will change because we've shown generosity through our lives. In your name I pray, amen. Greatest encourager of all, the one who gave it all is Jesus. We're gonna have a time of communion right now. We wanna get that ready. This represents his body. It's broken on the cross. This is his shed blood. Our sins are forgiven. But here's what I'd like for you to think about, pray about after I pray, and then we'll have a time of just silence where you can think and pray yourself. As I partake of this, Jesus becomes a part of me. It's not literally his body and blood, but it is more than just a wafer and it's more than just some grape juice. He becomes a part of me through this act. And if he becomes a part of me and he becomes a part of you, then we're a part of one another. This is a time of, of unity, not only with Jesus, but with the church. Communion is not just Jesus and me. It is also Jesus and we. And so I'd have you consider your relationship to him during this time. Thank him for what he's done. Confess your sins. But also think about the church body. How can you be generous with those around you?
how we can be generous as a church to be more like the Jesus who gave it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time of communion. It's a sacred act. It's a time when we come before you and we thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for eternal life. And Lord, I thank you also for your church, your church of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that we, as we know that there are some that are definitely hurting today for various reasons, because of loss, because of struggles, uh, because of relationships, because of sin. And I pray, Father, that you would lift them up through this time, that they might know that you are with them, we as a church body are with them. May they be encouraged through your generosity. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.